0: Uh, So some of you may know, Shannon and I uh, cross-country dated for two years before we got married. Uh, She was living in California. I was living in Princeton working on my master's degree in order that I could graduate and and become a pastor. And really most of our dating life was experienced from 3,000 miles apart. (laughs) We were laughing the other day. We were trying to explain to our kids that you actually used to have to pay for long distance phone calls and the expense that was incurred in doing that and we of course made lots of cross country trips as well so we could so we could be together now i loved living in princeton uh, it was an hour from new york city an hour from philadelphia three hours from Washington, D.C., and, and there was just so much culture and so much, uh, it was so easy to get to places, and my aunt uh, lived on the Upper West Side of New York City, so whenever I went up to the city, I always had a free place to stay, and early on in our dating, I remember Shannon flying out, and we went up to New York uh, to hang out with my aunt and to see some of the, the sights of New York City. And I knew that one of the places that was really important for my wife to see that she really wanted to spend time at was the Metropolitan Museum, the Museum of, uh, of Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. Now, you have to know something here. My wife is an artist. She loves creating. She loves looking at things and pieces of work and pieces of art that other people have created. Me, not so much. But I knew that if, since this was early on in our dating life, that if she was actually going to marry me, I needed to show some interest in the things of the artistic world, in places of creativity. And so we made our way to the Met Museum, walked up those wonderful stairs, walked inside, and I said to her, Uh, what do you need, about an hour to see this place? Yeah, that sounds about right. Two million square feet with all those pieces of art, all those artifacts, everything that is in the Met Museum. And I remember the look on her face when I said, what do you need, about an hour. And there was a lot of emotion going on there. Because she wanted to see the beauty and the wonder and the glory of that place to go from gallery to gallery to gallery and to appreciate what was in front of her. So I gave it a try. You need to know this. I, I did the typical artist thing and stood back and, and looked at these pictures where there were benches. I, I kind of sat down and hummed and hawed and, and, and made some noise and, and really gave it my best effort, which honestly probably wasn't that great. And so after about an hour of this, I said to her, um, hey, do you mind if you kind of just keep walking through here and I go and get a cup of coffee across the street? And I think she was delighted that I was just going to leave. Now, the truth of that experience is that we were both looking at the same pieces of art, but experiencing them in very different ways. She saw the glory of it. She saw the wonder of it. She saw the beauty of it. And I just thought, how much longer? Now, I would like to say I have matured some, and I think I could do a better job at the the Met Museum today than I did 25-plus years ago. But my wife, because she's an artist, she, she looks at this art differently. She sees the glory that it reveals. And this morning, we want to talk about the glory of God. We're in this sermon series on the Psalms. We've got this Sunday and next Sunday. And then as we move in the season of Lent, we're going to be looking at the book of Hebrews. But today we, talk, we see how David says we are to ascribe glory to God. And then he talks about why we are to ascribe that glory to God. So we're in Psalm 29. We'd love to have you follow along as we read about these words of David. It starts this way. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. Now listen to how this crescendos here. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon leap like a calf. Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forests bare. And in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people With peace. Six times in verses three through nine, we read about the voice of the Lord. And as I said, it is this crescendoing effect that it has. The Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. He breaks the cedars. He puts them into pieces. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. He shakes the desert. He twists the oaks. He strips the forest bare. There is this momentous movement happening here as David describes who, what the voice of God is like. What the word of the Lord is like. And the people say, glory, glory to God. David describes this, this majestic nature of the living God. And he begins it by saying in verse three, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders, the Lord thunders over the mighty waters and this idea of thunder and lightning back in the days when David is writing this in the ancient Near East, that was those moments of thunder and lightning were seen to be times of revelation. And so what David is doing is he's using these images that other people would have understood of saying, there is revelation coming. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. Now, when we think about the voice of the Lord being over the waters, or at least when I do, I go back to Genesis chapter 1. The spirit of the Lord was brooding, was hovering over the waters is how we read about it in the very beginning of the creation story. There was uncertainty. There was chaos. The, the Jewish people understood when they looked at large bodies of water, they saw those places as, as, as places of chaos, as places of uncertainty, as the great unknown. They were, they were land-dwelling people, and so they were fearful in that day and age of the seas. And so what's happening in Genesis one is we are reading that God is, is creating in that chaos that God is pushing back the waters that God is pushing back the chaos in order to bring his kingdom in order to bring sacred space. Because if you think about the Garden of Eden, it really is sacred space. There's, there's tons of images that we're not going to look at today, though, that relate how, 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 how Eden relates to the temple of God. It's sacred space. But God is the only one who can push back the waters, who can bring order out of chaos, who can speak hope and life, into the uncertainty, into the void. And this is what God is doing. God is separating. So that when we get to Luke chapter 8, and you may recall this story, Jesus is out on the lake. This happens a couple of times. A huge storm comes up. The disciples start to freak out. And they're like, Lord, we're going to die. And this is terrible. And, and, and you've got to do something. And Jesus gets up. Remember, he rebukes the wind and the waves. And the disciples look at each other. And this is Luke 8, 25. And and they can't believe what they've seen. And Jesus says, where is your faith? Where is your faith? He asked the disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, who is this? Even the winds and the water. He commands even the winds and the water. And they obey him. Who is this? who commands the winds and the water and they obey him. No one, no one had control over the water and the winds except for God. And now when Jesus does this, when he calms the storm, they are realizing that they are seeing God in the flesh. Who is this that can do this? And so Jesus calms the storm. That's why in the Old Testament, when we see the parting of the Red Sea, when we see the parting of the Jordan, there is significance because God is pushing back the chaos. He is, he, is place, he is creating a place of redemption for the people of Israel to cross over the Red Sea, for the people of Israel to cross into the Promised Land. He's holding back the chaos. He redeems. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. And then if you recall, when Jesus gets baptized, we hear the voice of the Lord again. He comes up out of the waters, and this voice from heaven says, This is my Son, whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. And this is the the strongest affirmation of the Father for His Son. I love my Son. And because we enter those waters of baptism we get the same word spoken over us. This is my beloved daughter. This is my beloved son, whom I love. And I am well pleased. And So Jesus emerges out of those waters and God speaks. The word became flesh is how the gospel of John describes that and dwelt among us. And then Jesus, again, we hear the voice of God when he is transfigured. When, when he goes up to the top of the mountaintop and, and Elijah is there and, and Moses is there and, 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 and God speaks. And he says, not only is this my son, I want you to listen to him. To listen for his voice. The voice of the Lord is with us. God's word is. Accomplishes what it intends to do. Isaiah 55 says, reminds us of that, that God's word will not return to him void, but it accomplishes its purpose. So David is saying, This is what the voice of the Lord is like. It is majestic, it is grand, but it also speaks to us in, in, in almost a place of, of intimacy to let us know that we are beloved, to let us know that we are loved. And the question then is how do we respond? How do we respond to this voice of God? And there at the very end of verse 9, David says, all in the temple cry glory. This is how we respond. Now, I had a buddy of mine when I was in seminary who came out of a much more charismatic background, and he would say that sometimes just saying glory is not enough. He liked to say hut glory because when you're saying hut glory, it means all of you is getting into this praise of the living God and David says all of creation all of us in the temple all of us worshiping God when we think about this voice of the Lord we cry glory that Hebrew word for glory there is the word kabod it means heaviness it means weight weightiness like it weighs something it's substantial And when we think about the glory of God, that is what we are saying, that this God whom we worship is one who is worthy of our worship, that he is substantial. And I don't want to miss the glory of God. I missed glory and wonder and beauty when I went to the Met with Shannon years and years and years ago. But I don't want to miss the glory of God, the kabod of God. So there is this story in First Samuel chapter 4, and, and we've talked about this story before. It's about the Ark of the Covenant being taken away from the people of Israel. Eli is the priest. He's been doing a terrible job of leading the nation Phineas and Hafni are his two sons. They're also, they've are also they also done a terrible job. They end up dying in this battle. And Phineas' wife is about to give birth to a child. And, and she gives birth to this boy. And they ask her what she's going to name the child. And do you remember what she names the child? It goes back to this word, Kabod. She says his name shall be Ichabod. Ichabod. Which means the glory has left because of the sinfulness and brokenness of the nation of Israel, because of Eli and Hophni and Phinehas and the ways in which they misled the people. The Ark of the covenant was taken. The people had not been living by faith. And she says, name the child Ichabod basically translated. No glory. God's glory is gone. And I don't want that to happen for us. I want for us to continue to be amazed and astounded that this God, this God who creates, this God who shakes the forests, this God who is over the waters, that this God longs to be in relationship with us. We talked about this before, but but there is this beautiful thing of this glory. And not that the glory is for God. But also the reality is that God's glory is given to us. We see this in John chapter 17, verse 22, as Jesus prays for his followers. And he says this, he's praying to God and he says, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that may, they may be one as we are one. Did you catch that? Jesus says, and this isn't just for the disciples. This is for all of us. When he prays for all believers, for those who will come after the disciples, he says, I have given them, them the glory that you gave to me, that they may be one just as we are one. And my gosh, what an incredible gift. That kabod, that heaviness, that, that, that issue of that, that substantial thing that God is, is given to us. We are substantial. We bear the weight of that glory. And it's not a burdensome weight. It's a gift. I love how N.T. Wright describes this as he talks about how we are to live our lives. He says, we are to be angled mirrors. We are to be an angled mirror, reflecting God's wise order into the world and reflecting the praises of all creation back to their creator. We are to live like an angled mirror. And and if you think about that image of a mirror, I love that because, and Wright says, we do two things. We reflect God's wise order into the world. We reflect his glory into the world. But then we also reflect the praises of all of creation Back to him. There's two things that are happening. And it's all wrapped up into God's glory. Because you and I bear the weight of that glory. And what an incredible gift that is. But sometimes let's be serious. Life's hard. We get weary of the pilgrimage that we are on. Life is a struggle. Remember verse 11 in the Psalm that we just read, the promise of what God gives to us. He gives strength to his people and blesses his people with peace. But it's a struggle sometimes. So last week I I alluded to the story of Jacob and Jacob wrestling with the man of God in Genesis 32, pleading and hanging on until he is blessed, getting his hip knocked out of the, the socket because of this wrestling that goes on, wanting God's blessing. But what's fascinating to me is this is that 20 years earlier he had received the blessing of God. Listen to these words, Genesis chapter 28, verses 13 through 15. This comes in the dream that Jacob has. You may recall he grabs a rock, goes to sleep, And all of a sudden there is this this ladder uh, that's in front of this this stairway, if you will, that's in front of him that goes all the way to heaven. And the angels are ascending and descending, which is rather remarkable in itself. There's a whole sermon in that as well. This idea that God comes down for us. None of the other gods ever did that. The only way you reached God was you had to climb up to get to God. But there is no way that any of these other gods are going to come down and help. But not the God of Israel and not the God that we worship. So Jacob's resting, and he has this vision, and then he hears the voice of the Lord in verse 13. There by the ladder, there above it, stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south, All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. 20 years earlier, back here in Genesis 28, Jacob receives this blessing from God. This word of promise, I am with you. I will bless you. I will remember the promise I made to Abraham and to Isaac. Jacob, this is your blessing. This is your promise. And yet, here we are in Genesis 32, and Jacob is wrestling with God. Wrestling with this man of God over the blessing. And Jacob says, I'm not letting go until you bless me. And the man of God says, you better let go because daylight is coming. And if you see me, you will die. And Jacob says, not until you bless me. And I wonder what was spoken to him. We're not told. But I wonder if that man of God just whispered in Jacob's ear one more time. God's with you. He's given you the promise 20 years ago. He's not going to abandon you. He's not going to forsake you. And then it's over. And Jacob names the place Peniel. For I saw the face of God, he says, and I lived. He beheld the glory of God and lived. But as you recall, he also limped for the rest of his days. He would receive a new name. He would receive the blessing, but he would also limp because he was one who struggled with God. But he said, I beheld, I beheld the glory, the wonder of the living God. And I lived. So we too, because of what Christ has done and how Christ has come for us, we have beheld his glory as the gospel of John talks about. And I love how the Apostle Paul puts it in Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. We don't always read this scripture, but I love, I love what it says. The Apostle Paul says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. God gave us the light of his knowledge, of his glory that is displayed in the face of Christ. We have beheld his glory. So for us, We all wrestle with God at times. We all grow weary. We all begin to lose our way. But yet what what Psalm 29 says is, look, there's something about giving glory to God. The first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what is the chief goal of humankind? What is the chief end of humanity. What's the main thing that we're to be after the response to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What is it that we ought to be about? The Westminster shorter catechism says you are to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So we need to pray. God, let us see your glory. But in the midst of that, we need to remember that God has come close. That God draws near to us. And, and if you look at Psalm 29, it's fascinating how this, how this psalm works. Because it crescendos and it builds all the way up to the benediction in verse 10. But then I like to imagine that things get quiet. After the breaking of trees and the thunder and the lightning and the, the wild storms, we read this. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. God reigns as king. And he gives us his strength and peace. God is with us. We see that at this table. That's why it's such an important reminder for us to eat the bread and drink from the cup. Remembering that God is for us. That he is glorious. So let's not miss his glory. But let's also not forget that we bear the weight of his glory. That we are to live as angled mirrors. Reflecting God's glory to the creation, to the world in which we live but also reflecting back our praise and our glory to God, the one who gives us life and hope. Pray with me, please. God, thanks for today. Thanks for um, being with us. Lord, we ask as we come to this table that you would feed us, that you would remind us, Lord, that we, we wouldn't miss your glory, that we would see you in all of your goodness and in all of your grace. And, God, that we would see and be reminded that you have placed that glory within us, that Jesus said, I'm giving that glory to my followers. So, God, thanks for this day. Thanks for loving us. Continue to guide us. We pray and ask. In Jesus' name, amen.